Again. Hey, one of my one of my basketball homies, he got stuck down here yesterday. Because when we got down playing basketball, he got a text and it said the bridge was closed. He said, but he he owns a house on Burt Lake conveniently. So he lives in St. Ignace. And so he said, I'm going to go over there and hang out until they opened. And they didn't open until almost 11 o'clock yeah. last night. Anyway, so today, is there, excuse me, does everybody have their copy? You want to die? Not darn. <laughs> Ron. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Something easy. I think you should do uh, Ecclesiastes. I got the perfect book for it. I got I got I got uh, uh I got Charles Bridges commentary on Ecclesiastes and I got Warren Brisbane that's all you need between the two or uh Mills is doing the parables at his small group and he's doing he's using uh that guy from Philadelphia's book on it um no the voice James Montgomery voice and uh I like Wearsby's Windows on the Parables. It's it's pretty nice. Very nice. I think something else is coming. Maybe not. Okay, so so today we're talking about, um, this is lecture five, the fall of man, the virgin birth, and the atonement for sin. Let's have a short prayer, and then uh, we'll jump into it. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together uh, with our friends, and we pray that you bless our time together. And you know, we need your help, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, any questions uh, about this, if you've had a chance to glance over it? Any questions at all in general about uh, what's happening so far? Next, next week, we'll be into grace and the new creation, the freeness of salvation, justification, and then lecture seven, repentance and faith. I tried to divide these up in threes. Um, that way we... The last one's going to be four, I think. I don't think we're going to look at the supplementals to it. But those are worth knowing about. Okay, the fall of man. The fall of man. So our, our confession says, We believe uh, that man was created in innocence under the law of his maker. But by a voluntary transgression fell from a sinless and happy state, in consequence of which all mankind are now sinners, not only by constraint, but of choice, and therefore under just condemnation, without defense or excuse. Now this this the fall of man is often called original sin. And that's and most Baptists don't call it original sin because of their overcorrection against Catholicism. Anything that smells like Catholic Catholicism, Baptists always jump away from it. Protestants, Protestants, <laughs> I'm not saying Baptists are not Protestants. Protestantism at large uh, tends to, they're not too squeamish about it. But the Baptists that I've, I've been around are pretty squeamish about. Uh, they, they think they love to kick us a Catholic church. So this is about man's condition after the fall. Now the contrast has to be noted here, the contrast. We believe that man was created in innocence under the law of his maker. There's some kind of debate sometimes about whether or not 
uh, about what kind of status Adam and Eve had before the fall. Usually it's called the age of innocence. They were innocent. Some people don't want to call them holy because they, because they lost it. They, whatever state they were in, though, was a positive state with God. It was either a positive condition. But it was a condition that wasn't permanent because they could lose it. They could lose that status. And so in the garden, God puts Adam and Eve, and he puts the tree. And there's always a debate about, you know, it's in, it's in, it, the confession deals with it slightly about constraint. They sinned willingly and not by constraint. There, there is a big argument that takes place in Christendom about <clears throat> why Adam and Eve sinned and why the tree was there. Why was Satan there? <laughs> and the argument would be like, if God didn't want him to fall, why did he make it so easy? Why did he grease the skids? <laughs> why did he put banana peels all around the hole? Because, and that's a big debate. Was was Adam forced to sin? Was it a part of God's eternal decree to sin? That's where you get into lapsarianism, super lapsarianism, super lapsarianism. We don't, we don't, we don't know the answers to those questions. Can I, can I go back to your original statement? If um, Baptists don't like the term original sin, what is the term Baptist in, in general? The, the fall of man. This, this is you know, here in, in the uh, the London Confession, kind of the standard thing. It just says the fall of man. Yeah, yeah. I've. It's not. It's not in our. The, the way you got to remember these confessions. The way they're worded is almost always in response to some error. They're always clarifying. And so I always want to draw a line. Like, we are not like this. That's why in this confession, when it talks about the virgin birth, listen to what it says. Born of Mary, comma, what? A virgin, comma. But in the Bible, it actually calls her the virgin. Now, we don't call her the virgin Mary. We don't think of her as being the virgin Mary. Why don't we think of her as being the virgin Mary? Overreaction to Catholicism. You know, and, and all and all these things. I had a, a lady visit my church in Arkansas. She was a Catholic. She was from New Orleans. She was one of those uh, Katrina evacuees or refugees. And she visited around Christmas time. And I was preaching on the incarnation. I was preaching on the virgin birth. After service, she said, "I didn't know Baptists even believed in the virgin birth and the Virgin Mary." I said, "We don't believe in the Virgin Mary like we're trusting in her, but we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin." That was shocking to her. Because there's, there's this, there's always this overcorrection. Man always overcorrects, always overcorrects. So the innocence that he has under the law of his maker, he had this innocent condition, but then he fell. Now let's look at uh, Ecclesiastes. In your notes, it should be 729, not 724. Ecclesiastes 729 says, it's this great reading. Why are things so hard to find in the Bible sometimes? Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. So this is Adam's original condition. He's made upright in his status that's acceptable to God, but he seeks out the schemes. Of course, you know, Satan is there contributing to the fall. 
And then the confession makes a special point to say it was a voluntary transgression. All of the Lapsarian arguments and the decrees of God and all that kind of stuff are all wonderful things to think about. But when you read the Bible, when you read the Genesis account, it reads like it was something they wanted to do. Eve, the Bible says in the New Testament, Eve was beguiled. Adam was not beguiled, but Eve was deceived. And so she eats of the tree. And then Adam, he voluntarily eats of the tree himself. Now keep this in mind. It's never called the sin of Eve. In Romans 5, it's the sin of who? Of one man, Adam. Adam acting as the federal head of his family. There's one identity. It's him. And when he commits the sin, it was passed down to, to all of us. So it's a voluntary transgression. He lost his sinless and happy state. His condition changes. We know immediately he's filled with shame. They, they run and hide. They know that they are naked. And they have this, uh, this sense of it. Now we talk about original sin. There's something I always kind of got to think about. Is um, when... Our people, uh, I'm going to put accounted guilty. When? Because Adam and Eve, they, they, made a they made a voluntary choice. We're going to disobey God and they pledge themselves in this sin. Now, you and I, as a consequence, we are all sinners. Romans 5, 11 through 21. By sin, one man enter, by through one man sin enters the world. And we're all guilty of that transgression. The authorized version says, even those who did not sin after his similitude are in the same way. It's it's a different thing. So it passes down to us. So when are people accounted guilty of sin? Is it at your first uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Willful sin? And if you're if you're a Baptist, you know this. You know this. This is all about the uh, the age of what accountability. Now the old confessions, the London Confession, says of babies who die, and the Westminster says it too: elect infants go to heaven. Elect infants go to heaven because they don't know if, they, if you believe in election. God's already chosen His people. You don't know who's elect and who's not. So it says elect infants go to heaven. This is really. This whole idea here, and I'll just put it back like this, elect infants. This whole idea has was what produced the free will Baptist movement. Benjamin Randall, the Calvinist of his day, they're always, everybody always goes to extremes, right? They're always pushing extremes. The, the Calvinistic pastors of his day were teaching that there were babies the size of a man, the span of a man's hand burning in hell if they were not elect, because it was all about election. Randall finds this objectionable. It's such such a cruel thing to emphasize, because you don't. You, you, but this is what they were saying. It was all about the sovereignty, and so this idea of the infants and the age of accountability <clears throat> becomes a becomes a big deal. When do men become accountable for their sins before God? Uh, if you, we're, I'm, I'm working through Romans 5 right now for Sunday. So A.T. Robertson, you guys know who A.T. Robertson was? A.T. Robertson was the, he's the, the greatest Greek scholar America's ever produced. 
Don't tell John MacArthur. <laughs> but A.T. Robertson, he taught Greek at Southern Seminary. And he was he was there in the early, I think he died about the 1930s. Uh, he was uh, probably, probably in the 1930s. He was there before the 1900s. He was there in the late 1800s. And uh, his, he wrote a lot of great stuff. He has Robertson's New Testament word pictures. It's called Robertson's Word Pictures. He says in his day, he's a Calvinist, Calvinistic Baptist. He says in his day, no one talks about elect infants anymore. Now, I thought that was stunning. Nobody talks about it anymore. And the reason why nobody talks about it anymore is because Benjamin Randall, in my opinion. And you can see in, in Confessions, this confession says it, that we believe in election, but we don't believe in election. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a strangely worded document in that regard so um so when do people become accountable for their sin when are people counted guilty is it when they're born just because they're conceived are they sinners we're conceived in sin right no trick questions no trick questions we're we're conceived in sin we come we come forth from the womb speaking what speaking lies we tell lies we've all had children We we had to trade any of our children to sin we to jam do the right things, so we know we know they're sinners. But when are they accounted guilty? When is it held against them? When is it held against them? One guy says, "Well, it's because they die. Do babies die? Do children die? They die. Why do they die? Well, if Romans six twenty three is right, the wages of sin is what." Yes. So on some level, they're, they're, they're accountable. Um, A.T. Robertson, he says that the death of Romans 5 is not quite the same death as the death of a willful sinner. Because kind of the universal argument became in our lifetimes, in, this, in the last 150 years, is that all infants, this is a quote from the old stuff, this is a crude word. All infants and imbeciles, I don't mean this derogatory, it's just what they, people had, who had mental incapacities, all infants and imbeciles are innocent. Who said that? Well, that's it's pretty, pretty universal. A.T. Robertson says it. Uh, John Gill wouldn't say it. Most of the 19th century forward theologians, except for Presbyterians, they're pretty locked in the Westminster Confession. They're not allowed to deviate. But A.T. Robertson says this. So also does John Piper, a name we all know and love. And guess who else says it? MacArthur says it. So this is this is the standard. This is the standard view nowadays, not the standard view a long time ago. One pastor from Alabama, I was listening to him give a talk about it, and he said, how come nobody ever came up to Jesus and said, is my baby in heaven? They, they asked him all kinds of other questions, but they never, nobody ever said, is my baby in heaven? And he said, why is that? I thought, that's, a good, that's an interesting question. This guy said, because everybody knew where they were. Where were they? Heaven. <laughs> Did they use that from David's I, I think so. Well, I think so. 
you remember you have Jesus making that statement when they bring the babies to him of such belong the, uh, to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And then MacArthur points this stuff out about it. When the Israel is offering their children as burnt sacrifices, God says, you have offered my children to the idols. God claims them as his own, which brings up another issue. So, <laughs> Welcome back to Terry Terry Bastion's International Teaching Ministry. So, <laughs> so that brings up this question in my mind: They are God's children. If the babies are being sacrificed, you know, and they're God's children, when do they stop being God's children? And I don't think I'm the only person who ever asked that question because we have the whole idea and teaching about what? The age of accountability. <laughs> so when is it? You know, it's a it's it's a mystery to me. I don't I don't know what to say about it. Now my brother, believe it or not, said something to me that was the most interesting thing I've ever heard. And and I'm not sure where he got it from. But it's about admitting even their nakedness. That's what caused me to go down this rabbit trail. And they, when I said the nakedness of Adam, Adam and Eve. My brother said, he said, I think that when kids become aware of their nakedness, that might be when they're, they become accountable before God. Because I've had five kids. You know, we've had some streakers <laughs> in our house. You know, but that goes away after a while. They grow out of it. And when, when does it happen exactly? Twenty-two. <laughs> Twenty-two. <laughs> Later. So I don't. I don't know. So 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 there you go. There's my. There's experience. You know, if your experience is late, is that the kids are more comfortable with their nakedness until they're much older. Ours, they seem to knock it off about seven or eight. And I don't know if it was because we said, "Don't come out here like that," and we trained them into it, or they became really uh, personally aware of it. Um. I would say definitely as a teenager, you become very, very self-conscious about, about your body when you, when you go through puberty. And puberty seems to be such, a, such an atom bomb that goes off in kids anyway because you have 90% of kids raised in evangelical families. They make professions of faith before they go through puberty. Then they go through puberty, and by the time they're 15, they don't give a hoot about God. So something happens in there. One theologian says, if your kid's a believer before puberty and after puberty, they're probably really a Christian. Because there's something cataclysmic that takes place in there. And uh, I don't know the I don't know the answer to all those questions, but original sin, there's always those objections that come up. Well, don't the Jews, by, by their use of the bar mitzvah, uh, kind of go with 12, 13... When I was growing up, in our family, our personal family, it was twelve. We couldn't mm-hmm. be baptized. We couldn't make a decision to be baptized until we right. were twelve. Yeah, that's that's that was good. That's good thinking on your on your dad's part. That was his idea. That's good. <clears throat> he was a good, he's a smart guy. Uh, Jews, you know, Jews put their children under the law at circumcision, so they're 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 saying we're under the law then. And so I'm not sure if there is a yeah eight days, and then if they transgress afterwards, they could be stoned. If a kid is a you know just is rebellious or a drunkard, 
they could bring him before the elders and have him stoned because he was a no-count, a derelict. It doesn't seem that that was very common because it's a very, very tough thing to do, you know. But if they went into idolatry, they were accountable. And so you had the, the whole hear and fear principle. I don't now, know. We got to be baptized at 12, and then we got our first Schofield Bible. Yes. Wouldn't, wouldn't the same concept be in a covenant theological church where they are baptizing the Baptism, they're, they're brought into the covenant, and wouldn't that then serve as that same kind of protection? Yeah, what, what, one of my, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, that's. One of my one of my friends who pastors in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, he says, I have no pastoral comfort to the parent of a deceased child unless that child was baptized. So he's saying, I can't tell those people that their baby died and went to heaven unless that child was baptized. If otherwise he said there's no there's no pastoral comfort because that's the sign of bringing them into the covenant. They're brought into the covenant by on by the family. The father acting as the head, as the representative of the family, is bringing that child into the covenant, and then, and that's that's intact until the child rejects the covenant when they get to be you know old age. So that that is that is that's a covenantal view, and that's that's where the, that's exactly where the Jews get it from. That's where Presbyterians and Pedo Baptists get it from. Is from the Jewish the Jewish tradition, of circumcision. Now that, that that's the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The PCA does not say that. <clears throat> the PC USA, they don't say anything. <laughs> so they're not gonna they're not gonna say that. Uh, there's the you know there's the the URP, the ERP, United Reformed Presbyterian Church, and, and the ERPCA. There's all kinds of that. The OPC is the more strict of them all. But those are questions that, that come up about original sin. So if you want to think about it uh, sometimes. And um now, it says here, in consequence, mankind are now sinners because of Adam's fall. And it's not only by constraint, but by choice. Now, it says not only by constraint. So, if you are constrained to do something, what does that mean? You're forced to do it. So, the fall in nature overrides us and makes us sin. We're bound by our natures. And this is, you got to keep this in mind. You have Adam and Eve. They had libertarian free will. They had the, they had the right of self-determination. They could make a choice and determine their future. That's something that you and I do not have. We do not have the choice to not be sinners. They had a choice. They sinned. That taint, that original stain comes down to us. And we don't have a choice. We are bound by our natures, by constraint, right? Uh, <laughs> you, ever, you ever see these pictures on Facebook of somebody who says, oh, I found this cute little dog on the side of the road. And they show a picture of it, and it's a coyote or a wolf in the back seat. <laughs> you know, and you know what's going to happen. The thing's going to go nuts because... They have to follow their nature. And there's kind of a little story about this guy who uh, uh, he gets a snake and he raises it and he loves it and takes care of it. And then one day the snake bites him and he dies. And, you know, and in heaven, he, he asks the Lord, why did the snake bite me? And the, and the Lord says, that was his nature. 
what he's made to do. He's made to do those things. We follow our nature. That's a Romans 7 thing where Paul says, I find then in my members a law written. J.I. Packer and his little thing and his little adaption of John Owen's thing about sin. Packer says, I was struggling with my sin so much that I thought I was not a Christian. And he's like, I just couldn't get past it. It's just always there, nagging and chewing on me. So then he read Romans. And then he read Owen on it, where it says, it's like there's a law in my members. There's something that I, I know I should do the right thing. I'm, this morning, I'm reading Ephesians 5, about husbands loving your wives as Christ of the church. Uh, let, me, let me read it to you. And this was a, you ever been punched in the throat? This was a, th <laughs> whoa, this was a throat punch to me because Val and I just had this conversation where she was telling me that I was doing the opposite of this, okay? <laughs> I didn't mind, this is not the Bible I was reading. Ephesians 4, chapter 4. Ephesians 4, I was reading 5 this morning, but this is, in the NIV, they're kind of blended together, and I kind of read over sometimes. 4.30, Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one of you, just as God in Christ said. I'm going King James on myself here. <laughs> uh, just as Christ, just as in Christ, God forgave you. I'm like, and it says all. Get rid of all these things. And me, me, me I, we just got into it, you know, chewing on each other. I was wise to do sometimes. And I'm, and I'm just, goosh. And I think, how come, how many times have I told her, Valerie, I'm sorry for yelling at you. Valerie, I'm sorry for being too hard on you. Valerie, I'm sorry for being a jerk. How many times have I said that to her in 25 years of marriage? Almost 25 years of marriage. Billions. <laughs> I don't even know how many times. And I read it in the Bible. I'm like, how come I can't just remember this and do it? I can't. It's that, it's that law. It's that old nature. I'm always striving against it. I'm always just wrestling with it day after day. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of the sins <laughs> that are creeping around in me. Yeah, that, that's, a false, that's a false teaching. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, his, his teaching on that is false, too. He, he, he was wrong on his view. Anyway, so we're by constraint. It's, it's working in us. And therefore, it's not just by constraint, though. It's by choice. Because some of the sins that we are inclined to do, we actually want to do. We choose to do them. We choose to act on the lust. We choose to act on the angers. These are things that go on inside of us. And therefore, we're under just condemnation without defense or excuse. Because we're lawbreakers, because we have actually done the deeds, we are held accountable for them by God. And God has a complete record of all of them. And the only way you can have your record expunged is to go through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's why when you get to Romans 6, Paul talks about the dominion of sin. Now, it doesn't. the dominion of sin there does not mean that you have the power to not sin. Because we don't have the power to not sin. Because even the thought of foolishness is sin. Right? Just thinking, just leaping in there is a sin. So the dominion of sin 
is the consequences of sin. When sin's power is broken, or when you put your faith in Christ and you're, you're one of his children, sin does not have a claim on you anymore. Its power over you is broken. Because when you're a Christian and you sin, your status with God is never, is never messed up. It's never revoked. It's never taken away. You're safe. It can't, it can't, sin can't reclaim you and take you back to hell. That, that power has been broken forever. You've been justified, declared eternally innocent before God. So Romans 6 says, you know, sin's power is broken. And we know Paul's talking about that very thing because Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's a big question. And what's the answer? No, God, God forbid. <laughs> by no means. Man, never be so. All the different translations. So then you okay. Then you get into Romans 7, and you have the, the two marriages in Romans 7. This is such a beautiful thing. Now, if you're going to teach about divorce and remarriage, you never go to Romans 7, because it's not about divorce and remarriage. It's, it's about the law. Because in Romans 7, it says that the wife is bound to her husband as long as that joker is alive. But if he's dead, she's free to marry another. And the illustration is, is that Christians, because we died with Christ, because we died with Christ, we are free to be married to another. The law cannot judge us anymore because we died in Christ. I've already died for my sins. When did I die? In Christ. Galatians 2.20. The life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So my existence, I've already died for my sins. When did I die for them? In Christ. So because I've been, because my, and I'm dead to the law. So I'm free from the law because I died in Christ. Now I'm free to be married to another husband. To another covenant. Who am I married to? To Jesus and the new covenant. So this is, this is, this is a, that's, isn't that great? That's such a cool, I love thinking about that. And then you have, I'm married to Christ. In the last part of Romans 7, you think, well, I'm married to Jesus. I got no more problems. Right? Isn't that what we think? But I just married so-and-so. You know? Well, you're married to Jesus. You still have problems. <laughs> and who's the problem? Is it Jesus? Yeah, that's right. It's us. We're the problem. Your biggest problem is the face you shave or paint every day. <laughs> so, section eight, the virgin birth. How can, how can, the, how can the following people be saved there has to be a sinless person we believe that jesus christ was begotten of the holy spirit in a miraculous manner born of mary a virgin as no other man has ever been was ever born or ever or can ever be born of women he that is both the son of god and god the son so jesus has come into the world so you can see how these things they kind of they kind of follow each other jesus is the man without sin and how can he be without sin if he's a man? Well, he has to have a divine origin. He has to be begotten by the Father. So, there's a, this is a fundamental of the Christian faith, the virgin birth. It's one of the five fundamentals. Um, try to think of some of the things I said on Monday about it. Um, Isaiah seven fourteen says, "Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son," and uh, that's a strong reading. 
uh, some of the some of the the first round of modern Bible translations, newer translations, they left out the word virgin. They just put young woman, and that was that's if you have an ESV, the ESV is the RSV repaired. The RSV was rejected because it didn't say virgin; it said young woman. And the reason for that, the the fundamentalists said, it's because the modernists are trying to do at the virgin birth, which was probably true. But there's also another reason for it: is the Hebrew word for virgin there doesn't isn't the same, isn't the normal word for virgin? It's young woman. But what's the normal expectation? What's the normal sexual status of a young unmarried woman? The normal expectation would be that she would be a virgin, right? Now, the New Testament, it's much more explicit where it says virgin. It's the right Greek word for virgin. So it's sometimes it's, sometimes they kind of back translate it or what, not the back translate, what do they call it? Uh, um, they were teaching through translation, right? So the virgin birth is the son of God. Now, let me, let me talk about this for a minute. There's, there's some errors about the virgin birth that are out there. Now, this is something we have in common with the Catholic Church. And I'll give you an example of how people overcorrect. Have you ever heard of Anabaptist? Okay, Anabaptist today would be groups like the Mennonites. And, and to some extent, the Amish. And you'll find, you'll find some people today. I know a guy in Virginia, his name is Richard Owen. We used to go to his church when I was a kid. Um, he's an Anabaptist. He's, I'm an Anabaptist. So the Anabaptist, they they were a people who uh, their leaders had come out of the Catholic Church and just started to follow the simplicity of the New Testament, right? And so they're overcorrecting against the Catholic Church, and they over and one of those things has to do with the Virgin Mary. Now the Catholics. They say that Mary was a virgin. She gave birth, to, gave birth to Christ. Now, what is it about Mary that makes her able to give birth to a sinless son? What do the Catholics say? That Mary herself is sinless. And that she is a product of what kind of conception? The Immaculate Conception. So she, she's without sin herself. Which leads you down the path to, in Catholicism, Mariolatry. The worship of Mary. Mary becomes, Mary becomes an essential part of redemption. She's a co-redemptrix with Christ. And, you know, now we pray to Mary. Now, we don't pray to Mary, but they pray to Mary. And so, the Anabaptists, in their overcorrection, because this is what they do, we always overcorrect, I'll tell you, the only person I know that doesn't overcorrect, you know who it is? Me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's just our nature to overcorrect. So the Anabaptists, they said, okay, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, but he received nothing from her. There's a few passages in the New Testament that say that Jesus is the man from heaven. They say Jesus was a man in eternity. He had celestial flesh. That he was shrunk down and put in Mary's womb, you know, and grew up to be, be a man. But he was not human like you and I are human. He had celestial flesh. And this became an Anabaptist teaching. 
and I have this book in my office called The Martyr's Mirror. It's like 1,500 pages of a record of the persecutions of the Anabaptist people by the Catholic Church. And they, and they ask him, what do you believe about the Virgin Mary? They, they say, well, we believe she was a virgin. Where did Jesus get his humanity? He didn't get anything from her. He got it all from God. He's a man from heaven. He had celestial flesh. So he's a different category of man because they overcorrect. And so the normal thinking about the Jesus and where he got his humanity because Jesus is both God and man, right? Is that you have the egg and then in some way beyond our comprehension, the Holy Spirit comes along and does something to the egg and you get Jesus, right? And we don't know, we don't know how this happens. We don't know how this, this, this is beyond our comprehension. We kind of know how, how people are born, but we don't really know how this could take place. And so the standard view is that Jesus got his humanity from Mary, his mother, and he got his deity from the Holy Spirit or from the Father. Which leads us to a question. If he got humanity from Mary, if he got humanity from Mary, how did he get it without sin? That's right. Sin comes through the Father. It comes through the Father. That's why the Father of Jesus is God through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's the virgin birth. So he had to have a, he had to have a sinless, a sinless Savior. So that, the language, both Son of God and God the Son, is that just a Trinitarian word? That is, that, is a, that is a plain statement of the, that he's deity. Because we all we also are sons of God. John 1, 12. This means received him to the right to be called the sons of God as a power. So we are sons of God too. This is this is this confession was written to fight liberalism, right? Liberalism in the 1960s. And the liberalism in the 1960s is saying Jesus is not the son of God. He's not divine. He is a good teacher. He's a good man. The, 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 red, the red letter Bible people. So it's a statement about his deity. His deity. That's what these proof texts say. Like 1 Corinthians 14 or 1547, that's, uh, it talks about that him being from heaven. If you want to see the Anabaptist thinking, just read the rest of chapter 15. You can kind of see how they get their stuff. So you have the fall of man, the virgin birth, and now the purpose for Jesus being born of a virgin is so that he could atone for sin. This, this is the longest section. We believe the salvation of sinners is entirely of grace through the mediatorial offices of the Son of God, who by the appointment of the Father freely took upon himself our nature, yet without sin, Honored the divine law by his personal obedience and by his death made a full and vicarious atonement for our sins. His atonement consisted not in setting us an example by his death as a martyr, but was the voluntary substitution of himself in the sinner's place, the just dying for the unjust. Christ the Lord bearing our sins in his own body on the tree, that having risen from the dead, he is now enthroned in heaven and uniting in his wonderful person the most tender sympathies with divine perfection. He is every way qualified to be a suitable, compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. So this is a statement of the atonement. The word atonement means to be the bringing together 
reconciliation, making man and, and uh, bringing man to union with God. The confession points out that this is a, the grace that we have is through the mediatorial office of the Son of God. So grace, grace is favor. This is, this is really, we, we tend to think of like God just, God's attitude towards man is just grace in general. But that's not exactly true. Um, his attitude towards man is basically merciful. He's merciful. Which comes first, mercy or grace? That's a good, this, this is a good argument to have. Mercy or grace? God is merciful towards man, but the grace that we have with God is given to us freely, but it was paid for, purchased for us by who? By Jesus. So we have grace through Christ. The favor we have has been purchased by him. The, the blood bought this favor. <clears throat> it's only through Jesus. Now, mediatorial here, the word is, the word means, it's like conflict resolution, a mediator, bringing two opposing parties into agreement. Only Christ can do this. You know, this is a, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves to give to God, not of works as they mention boast, that kind of thing. So it's done for us. Jesus is the source of it. Now, the confession said it's by the appointment of the Father. This is God's, God is involved in this. This was God's design, God's choosing. God decided to save us through Christ. Jesus is the appointed lamb, the chosen lamb who freely took upon himself our nature. Jesus does this by his own his own desire, his own will, not by constraint. He obeys the law, and then uh, he offered his holy self on the cross for us. These are nice words. Uh, and by his death made a full and vicarious atonement for our sins. So vicarious is interesting. It means to be experiencing the imagination through feelings or actions of another person. So it's the, it's the it's not just bodily, not just as Jesus suffered bodily, but he suffered internally too. It's the whole enchilada. <laughs> it's the whole nine yards. Everything. His inner person. That's why that I think uh, this always seems to be underemphasized to me. But in Isaiah, it says it's not as clear in the NIV because it says his life. But in the authorized version, it says that God will make his soul an offering for sin. Soul. So not just his body, not just his blood, but his soul is exchanged for ours. Which is the other question. What does that mean? His soul. The suffering of his soul. And it says, the Bible says that you see the suffering of him and you'll be satisfied. Um, where did his soul go when he died? We're in the heart of the earth. And then there's always a debate about where did it go in the heart of the earth? Where did it go? Did it go to paradise? Did it go to Sheol? Where did it go? Or Sheol and paradise, two different places. Did, did his soul burn in the fiery place? Did it pass through hell to get to paradise? Where did his soul go? In the authorized version, in Acts, in Acts 2, it says, thou shalt, not, thou shalt not leave my soul in where? 
The authorized version says hell. Newer versions always say Sheol. Sheol, the place of departed spirits. Subterranean realms of the dead. Where did it go? phrase that he set the captive free. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 I don't think it's a song. <laughs> scripture. No, it's, a, it's in scripture. It's in, it's in Ephesians 2. It's in for it's in Peter. So that's where it's all <clears> like <throat> set the captive free that he left that with a train of victory. Um, yeah. That is that that that's the usual view of that is that he went that he went and he proclaimed liberty to the captives right. and he led and he took captivity captive and led many saints to glory right. many souls to glory he went into the subterranean realm and that's you know in the in, dis, in the dispensational view yeah right right Abraham's bosom in paradise same place. Yeah. Well, that's that's because it says it in in English. <laughs> it's uh, the, the the Greek word is there's three there's three words for hell: Sheol, Gehenna, and then uh, yeah, Sheol's Hebrew. I'm sorry, that's Hebrew. Hades is the Greek word. And then what's the other one? There's only this these are used several times in Tartaros. That's only in Peter. That appears. Um these they're all they're they're always directional, they're always down. It's always down in these places. Um where did he go? Did he go to hell? Now my, my own view on this is is has changed two or three times. I used to say Jesus did not go to hell. When I, when I say hell, I'm gonna put fire and torment. His soul did not go to hell, to fire and torment. He just went, went to paradise, the heart of the earth, to that other compartment. You know, Luke 16, you have the two compartments. The rich man is in Abraham's bosom and Lat. The rich man is not in Abraham's bosom. <laughs> the rich man's in hell. Lazarus is on the other side. You have this, the compartment. And so I would say, you know, Jesus did not go to did not go to hell. I don't agree with that. Well, then I thought, well, I don't know if I I don't know. I changed my mind. I said, I think he probably did did go to hell. And the reason for it was because the sin offering, what did they do with the sin offering? They killed it, put the blood on the altar, sent the scapegoat away. But what did they do with the, with the one that was killed? Burned. And you're like, well, do all those types have to be fulfilled? Is it, it has to be exactly like that? If it does, then there's, there had to be some... I said this at the at the ordination service, recently at ordination council, and the guy behind me, <clears throat> the kid, the kid we were talking, he brought this up, and I said, well, where do you think Jesus went? I said, because I'm not sure. I said, I think he may have went to hell, you know, burned, and then and everybody's like, no. <laughs> so you know you're with the dispensationalists when they say that, because <laughs> they they don't know everything, but they're never in doubt. <laughs> So I, <laughs> so I said, I said, well, all the sin offerings were burned. If Jesus is a type of sin offering, they were burned. And the guy behind me says, they weren't burned. They were consumed. Oh, and I no. go, I want to go. <laughs> so I don't know. My own view on it has, I've been on both sides of it. I can't, I can't decide. Uh, no. 
all all the all the mainliners would say he did not there was no burning of his soul but death that how is anything that is separate from God. Separate from God. And that, that's, you know, that, that's a... Because that was, you know, when he said, yeah, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. During that death, he is apart from God. Right. And that family, yeah. that was the hell, that was how, whenever you're away, yeah. when you're not in right with God. You can think, of, think about this. Uh, when you die, if you die as a sinner, you die. You're going to die, you're going to die now, right? And you're going to go to someplace. And if you die today, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to, you're going to go to pre-hell. You're going to go to Hades, because the lake of fire is yet in the future. You're going to be brought out. You're going to be judged, and you're going to go, and that's the second death. The lake of fire is the second death. Uh, Jesus dies one time, right? On the cross, he dies. Soul goes down somewhere. If he if he went to hell, then he also paid the second death. That's my thinking about it. I, I don't know. I, see, when you when you think about things like this, you think about it in your head, and you're like, oh, that sounds great. But then you got to toss it out there, because Proverbs says every man seems right when he first first makes his case, but his friends come along, and what do they do? They test him. They say, oh, I don't. So, you know, here's my perspective. So sometimes it's good to just think about it. Um, <clears throat> so I don't. I, I can't make up my mind about that. Um, but whatever whatever price was paid, Jesus paid it. Whatever was necessary for us to get ourselves into heaven, <laughs> Jesus did it. And we had to put our faith in him. His blood was poured out. He was, it was shed for us. The one who sits on the heavenly throne, this Savior, he is, in the, la- in the last line, uh, it says that he rose from the dead, is now enthroned in heaven, uniting in his wonderful person the most tender sympathies with divine perfection. So the one who's sitting on the throne in heaven, the risen lamb, the atoning lamb, he's not an austere and distant person. He's not a he's not a priest who's, you know, uh, he's he's sympathetic. He understands. He knows what we are. He knows we're dust. He knows we're slime balls. He, he knows what it's like to be us. He lived our life. Tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. All point, Tempted all the same ways. Maybe maybe are the general categories of, you know, uh, lustly eyes and pride of life. Or maybe all maybe all maybe all kinds of specific sins that we struggle with. All tempted with all these things, but he doesn't sin. So he knows what it's like to be us. He knows we can't do it. He, he doesn't overexpect. Have you ever, ever overexpected from somebody? <laughs> yeah. I don't. I, I latched on this from a book I read when I was a kid. And it said, keep your expectations low. You'll be disappointed less often. <laughs> uh, one of our kids said something snappy to somebody at the homeschool group one time. And if you've been around homeschoolers, they're kind of a unique breed of people. And... Um, yeah, uh, anyway. We were homeschoolers too, so I guess we were a unique breed here. But they're, they're, I, one of the kids said something snappy to some other home, some other kid who was homeschooled. And, 
And the lady comes over and she's like, I want to talk to you. And I said, okay. And she's like, I want to talk to you and your wife. And I said, that, no. I said, you just talk to me. I said, we have problems. Because even at the school, the school doesn't have Valerie's phone number. <laughs> because all problems come to Terry. And I, that's why I said, no, we're not going to talk to my wife. She said, well, this is serious. And I said, well, then I'm the perfect person to talk to. And so she said, your kid said, bah, bah, bah. And I went, well, I'm sorry about that. And I said, oh, I'll... well, yeah. He already knew it is. <laughs> I said they already said they already said they were sorry, and I said well if they said they're sorry, then I guess it got all worked out, right? And she's like, well, I wanted you to know because I know you have higher expectations than that for your kids, and I said that. No, this is exactly what I expect <laughs> from my kids. I'm not surprised at all. I said these kids are heathens. These are heathens. These are children of darkness. And she's like, there you go, the public school. <laughs> That's the children of darkness. Like, you know, just because we're a whole bunch of homeschooling wackos over here, you know, doesn't mean these kids are not sinners. I mean, I was coaching them, and so I was a, I was at soccer. I mean, they're all, they're all, they're just sinners. So don't overexpect. We we that's where we get frustrated. Where you get frustrated as a pastor. Because you think, well, these people, they've been going to church a long time. They should have their act together. Then you realize, you know, they're just sinners, <laughs> just like me. <laughs> and you know, you got you to have the right expectations. And Jesus on the throne, he's sympathetic to us. He knows. He knows. Remember, remember Peter? He says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And after the resurrection, Jesus is so kind to Peter because in the resurrection message, what is, what is the one person Jesus names by name? Tell who? Tell Peter. Because Peter had fallen off the wagon big time. Peter made the biggest fool of himself. And what does Jesus do? He lets Peter know, hey, you're still my guy. You're, st you're still my servant. Tell Peter. Be sure Peter knows. Because why? Because why? Peter probably, he probably went away. Sitting on a on a stump somewhere, bawling his eyes out, beating himself up, kicking himself, you know, over and over. Jesus knows this, and so what does Jesus do? He says, "Tell Peter." And so I said, "The Lord told us to come and get you." I can hear Peter saying, "Well, did he say everybody or me specifically?" <laughs> he said, "You specifically." You know, just think what a thrilling thing that is. And Peter goes, and so it's the Lord. He knows. He's sympathetic. Harold Seitler said. He's a sympathizing savior. Seated on the throne. He has tender sympathies with divine perfection. He is every way qualified. Every way qualified. Because many times our kids would say to us, you, have, you don't understand because you and Dad never did this. Yeah. Whatever their sin was. And I would say, no, I don't understand. I was never I was I was never tempted to do that. Mm -hmm. Um and I could refuse it. But tender sympathies with divine perfection, that that's an that is a really interesting Jesus never thinks that, even though he really was never, mm -hmm. he never did that. He never, yeah. Yeah. He's never, that, that's where, like at our house, our kids struggling with their, with their different sins that they, they've had is, so the, they always look at their parents and their, and even as a kid, I would be like, dad, you have no idea what it's like, yeah. you know, to be 16 and, you know, <laughs> want a girlfriend and, you know, you know what it's like to not be cool. 
Well, I've seen pictures of my dad when he was a teenager. He knew exactly what it was like to not be cool. <laughs> I mean, he struggled with all the things. I mean, but they just, we just don't tell him. We just don't talk about it, you know, because we don't want to. We don't want to give our kids a laundry list of all of our sins. Um, and it, it's and it's kind of a double edged sword, isn't it? If you tell your kid all the things, all the devilment you did as a kid, well, my dad did it, or my mom did it. And so that's a negative. And then the other side is you, the, the consequences of it. You know, I did this and this is what, how I suffered. You know, there's, there's, there's kind of a double-edged sword with it. But children, they, they, often, they often look at, they, see, they don't see our imperfections like we see them sometimes. We, we, think, we think it's obvious that we stink. But they don't, they, they, it's, it's interesting. It's such a fascinating dynamic. Uh, but you're right. Let's look at a few of these verses. These are good. First John four ten. First John four ten. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you have an ESV or NASB, it'll say. Propitiation. First John four ten. Well, I don't. I don't. I don't know that. I don't know that. I don't. Uh, it might be the Greek word. Oh, let's not waste time with it. We'll probably be right. It is. And that's, you know, that's the, uh, that's where Jesus is seated. He's on the mercy seat. There's only one, there's only one, there's only one seat in the Holy of Holies. It's the mercy seat. And that's where Jesus sits, enthroned. That's where he is. That's his ruling over us in that place. Exactly. And that, that's a great it's a great thing to think about. Hebrews says, through the eternal spirit, he entered into the heavenlies and puts his own blood there. And it's just his uh, it's just it's a fascinating thing. Uh Second Corinthians five twenty one is my friend Don Fortner, he said this is the greatest verse in all the Bible. And I think he preached from this one verse. And he preached at his own church every week, you know, three times a week. He probably preached this exact same verse at his own church two hundred times. He used to sit. He used to send me his sermon notes every week, and uh, when he his sermons on Second Corinthians five twenty one, he would put the date of how many times he preached it at the different places. Grace Baptist Church Danville, Grace Baptist Church Danville, Grace Baptist Church Danville, Grace Baptist. I'm mean, just over and over at his own church, just driving it in, driving it in. And what does it say? God made him to be going King James on me. On me. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him to be sin, so that we could be made righteousness. You know, if you're going to emphasize something, this is not a bad thing to emphasize. This is Martin Lloyd Jones says, says this about spiritual depression. He said, unless a man understands justification by faith 
he's always going to be depressed. He has no hope for escaping depression. Because you got to put your feet down on something solid every day. What, have you, what do you have that's solid? Is your wife going to stay with you for the whole day? May not. She could leave you or die. You're going to have your job for the whole day? May not. You're going to have your kids the whole day? May not. Remember Job. Just in a matter of days, he loses everything. But what are you going to have every single day of your life under the sun? Justification by faith. Put your feet down on the solid rock, the bedrock of Jesus Christ. You were resting upon him. So, great text. Let's read Hebrews 9, 12 through 15. Nine, twelve through fifteen. This is talking about the perfections of Christ that uh, under the Levitical priesthood. I, I assume everybody understood. On Monday, I took a little time to explain this. I wasn't sure everybody there understood how the Levitical priesthood worked. That the the Levitical priests, before they could go in once a year to make the atonement for sin, they had to make an offering for themselves. It offered offering to be sure they were purified to be able to go in. But Jesus did not have to do that. And he goes in by his own blood. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Remember the, the redemption of the Old Testament, the redemption of the, Levitical, of the Levitical priesthood. How long did that redemption last? One year. But this is eternal by one offering. The blood of goats and bulls, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our, interesting word, consciences. Consciences from the inside to the outside, the thorough cleansing from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So this is Jesus. He is this representative. I put down here to say we're cleansed to serve. Cleansed to serve. Serving the Lord. Doing his will in this world. Laboring as his servants. Then First John two two, as my father-in-law would say, we'd be remiss if we didn't visit this passage. First John two two. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world the the depth of Christ's atonement um, Andrew Fuller said the blood of Christ is sufficient for all but only efficient for those who believe Ian Paisley said the blood of Christ is sufficient for all the world. Then he said, not just all the world, 10,000 worlds, <laughs> but only efficient for those who believe. 
There's no benefit in, in, the, in, the, in the blood atonement for those who do not put their faith in Christ. If actual substitution took place, if Jesus died in the place of sinners, if actual substitution took place, there's some big implications to that. There's all kinds of views of, of, of uh, the atonement. The only one that's true is substitutionary atonement. There's, there's, there's about 12 categories of that too. But the, the big hitting to know is substitution, actual substitution, Jesus dying in your place. That's why salvation is so personal. When you came to faith in Christ, the pastor, the minister proclaimed universal. Everybody come, whosoever, but the Holy Spirit. He brought it down and applied it to you personally, where you had faith, where you had the desire to, to believe that Jesus died for you. He died for you. He brings it down personal. So he's, just, so he's not the head of a massive congregation. And you never get to Jesus. He's your own personal Savior. That's why, you know, the old saying was, do you have a, what kind of relationship with Jesus Christ? Personal. <laughs> it's not, not just believing academically or generally, but believing that he is your own Savior. Your own Savior. All right, so we're about 10 minutes early, believe it or not. If my watch is right. Any questions?